Amen to that. Hallelujah. I didn't tell you ahead of time the sermon text is from Psalm 128. So if you have a Bible and you can get there fast, go ahead and grab it. Otherwise, just look here on the screen. Coming back to this series through the Psalms of Ascents. So listen to the word of the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you go ahead and be seated for prayer? Well, Lord, we thank you always for your word, that it is true and living, active and powerful, that it always has something relevant to say to us, but not only in the way of instruction or guidance or advice, it has good news of what you have done. And it just has life that we don't even understand how it does what it does, but you do it, Lord, because you're good. And so we, we come with expectation that you have a word of life for your people today, as well as a word of truth. Lord, I just sense that there are some here today just walking through the week, walking through life right now with a heavy load. Praising earnestly this morning praising obediently this morning, but some having a little harder time lifting their hands even than maybe they ordinarily do, that they physically feel uh, the weight of stresses and burdens and uh, heavy cares and concerns. Lord, that there are some who would even say that their house doesn't appear especially fruitful right now, that their uh, labor is not either. God, that they aren't experiencing even on a personal level some of what we've just read. And so God, we cast our cares upon you today. Lord, I pray that you would minister graciously to people who need to experience your grace today. And so, would you do so and would you speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory? Lord, would you move me out of the way and use me as you're faithful to do to communicate to your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we took a three-week detour uh, from the Psalms of Ascent as we approached Easter, and so Psalm 127 seems a little distant, perhaps. It was just one psalm ago, uh, but it's been three or four weeks ago. So you may just glance up and remind yourself 
that it's really summarized by the first phrase of the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And you may recall the basic message of that psalm was that the whole order of society, whether political or uh, domestic, is maintained solely by the blessing of God and not by the policy, diligence, or wisdom of men. And you may remember that, this, that, that that's true in the workplace, true in the family, true in the political domain, and we uh, considered all of those. Well, Psalm 128 is definitely a companion psalm to 127. There's a reason why they go together. There's a reason why 128 follows 127. That's not so always so obvious. It is here that they belong together. They have a similar theme and a similar scope. The scope of concern, that is. You'll notice, in fact, in Psalm 128, just glancing at it, uh, that the blessing of God expands uh, from the individual and his labor in verse two, uh, to the family in verse three, to the city, Jerusalem in verse five, to the nation, Israel in verse six. That there is in view this ripple effect of the blessing of God from individual and family all the way out to the nation. And the message is really summed up in Psalm 128 also by the first verse, like 127. And it says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. The word for blessed can also be translated as happy. And some modern translations render it that way. There may be a handful of people that have a translation that reads that way, most do not. But it, can, it means both blessed and happy, and I find that to be helpful to even know that because we use those two words in very different ways. When we think of somebody being blessed, in fact, we, I think, many times make the error of associating that with material things and evidences of blessing. A blessed person has stuff, uh, we think. And on the other hand, we think of happiness as being um, a, an emotion, a feeling, and that kind of thing. In other words, those being blessed and being happy can be really some distance apart from one another in the way that we use the word. Uh, the Hebrew brings the two of those concepts together. They, they, it, it means them interchangeably. So to be blessed is to be happy, and to be happy is to be blessed. And in fact... Uh, I, I thought of, as I was studying that and unpacking that, um, I thought about how often, I don't know if Jerry uh, Cannon is here today, he's probably somewhere around, but anyway, if you ask him how he's doing, he'll tell you he's blessed and highly favored, right? And uh, if he just added happy to that, he would have it all summed up uh, right there because that's, that's all included in that word, that, that one who knows he is favored by God not only experiences that in some measurable, observable ways, but also just lives with this feeling of pleasure and contentment that comes from walking as a favored child of God. So the, really the subject of the message this morning is happiness. And it's sort of summed up in this statement that happiness is found through fearing the Lord and living life his way. 
Everybody's searching for happiness, right? I mean, really, that is true. Everybody wants it. Everybody's looking for it, longing for it. Even our Declaration of Independence, it says that one of our, uh, the, the rights of all people that, are, that is given them by their creator is the pursuit of happiness, the right to pursue happiness. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants to know where to find it. Uh, some of you may remember from years ago, the little book, titled, Happiness is a Warm Puppy. I don't know if you remember that one. It was by Charles Schultz, uh, who created Charlie Brown and the Snoopy, uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, all the, all the Peanuts cartoon characters. And uh, he, you know, listed a number of things that are just simple, basic little pleasures of life where happiness is found. Happiness is a warm puppy. Happiness is an A on your spelling test. Happiness is three friends in a sandbox with no fighting. There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? Happiness is sleeping in your own bed. Happiness is walking in the grass with bare feet. There's there's another whole list of them. But part of the message of that book is that um, happiness is enjoyed in simple things. But those simple things are really significant things. And in fact, we appreciate the significance of them and experience the happiness in them when we have lived for any length of time without those simple things, right? If you have them all the time, uh, they can cease to really bring you happiness in a way, in a way you forget uh, how precious they are. And so um, if you spend your day with just cantankerous people, you find a special degree of happiness in your warm puppy, don't you? Really appreciate your warm puppy who just treats you like you are the most special person in the world. And you really appreciate three friends in a sandbox with no fighting, right? Three friends in a mud puddle with no fighting would be good on some days, uh, given this, the kind of people we might otherwise have to interact with. But in other words, when we, when we live any length of time without those simple things, that provision, uh, then when we have them, we find happiness that's intended uh, to be given us in them. And you could say that the, uh, Psalm 128 really identifies some simple yet significant things that are... Um, not necessarily themselves sources of blessing and happiness, but the fruit of that blessing. So the the simple things like fruitful labor, labor that actually yields provision that's uh, sufficient to meet your needs, right? If If you've ever worked really hard and still come up short, then you know how true that is. You know how earnest a prayer that is. What a blessing that is. The simple blessing of a flourishing family or of peace in our community. Once again, we live, have lived for so long in a place of peace that we forget what a gift that is, what a blessing it is. But again, the underlying truth here is that happiness is the fear of the Lord. That didn't make the final edit of Charles Schultz's book. 
Happiness is a warm puppy and the fear of the Lord. I'm not sure how you would have illustrated that with Charlie Brown and Snoopy. And it really, it really kind of, I don't know, sounds a little bit dissonant even in our ears because again, the way we think of those concepts, uh, happiness and fear, they don't belong together. You know, fear of the Lord, of course, is something uh, altogether different. And, and this, this message that happiness is the fear of the Lord is really uh, one of the central messages in the opening chapters of, of the book of Deuteronomy. That happiness is found through fearing the Lord and living in his way, living life his way. I, I would say, by the way, this, this is, in my understanding of the scripture, so fundamental to understanding God's plan for creation, redemption, humanity, and all that kind of thing. It'd be a good place to go back and look. Because what, it, what happens there is the Hebrew people have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they're now standing essentially on the banks of the Jordan River. It's time to go cross the river and enter the promised land and occupy that. The land they've been promised, the land God is ready to give them. And they're in the preparation to cross over. They're given the 10 commandments for a second time. In fact, that's where the name of the book comes from. Deuteronomy means this second law, essentially. It's the second giving of the law. They're given the Ten Commandments. They're given a wide variety of other laws. And the, and the basic message that God delivers to his people repeatedly in the first 11 chapters or so of Deuteronomy, this is the way you were to live when you go in to occupy the land as the people of God. This is the way that you're to live. And if you do, you'll live a happy life. You'll be blessed. He says, he says that a number of times. We see one example in Deuteronomy 5.29. This would illustrate it, but you'll see this, this kind of language over and over. He says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me, to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Well, Psalm 128 is basically a song that envisions that sort of life. That essentially reminds the Israel, Israelites that this is the kind of life that God intends for his people. Generation after generation, you see those themes right here in this Psalm. Fear the Lord, walk in his ways. It'll be well with you. Uh, I think it, in, in, in my translation, uh, well, it does say that in verse two, it shall be well with you, the same word, the same phrase there. And, and even the hope that in verse six, may you see your children's children, that you would long to see uh, the blessing of God be poured over into the lives of your children and your children's children. That's the hope even in Deuteronomy, that it would go well with us and with our descendants. And of course, we, we, we shouldn't take this as a promise that every Christian is guaranteed a life of health and wealth and uh, comfort you know, that everybody is going to, is promised a flourishing family or a life filled with peaceful circumstances. I mean, there are people whose, whose faith is really upended 
when they, when they encounter real adversity, especially adversity for an extended period of time, when, when that woman can't have children but wants children, when the person is sick with a chronic illness and isn't healed and wants to be healed and prays to be healed but isn't, when the person struggles financially And if they think that somehow being a child of God is supposed to promise to every individual health and wealth and blessing of that sort, uh, then their faith is upended. It, it, It doesn't mean that, but neither does it mean that Christians who experience hardship have failed somehow in their obedience to God. It doesn't mean that we, you, you haven't worked the system quite right if you've experienced hardships because the like most Proverbs, wisdom psalms like this one really speak in principles rather than universal promises. We should, they, 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 des, they describe how things generally are, not as promises for how every person is going to experience that or measure it. Uh, and of course, that's not even to say that uh, by the standards of most of the world, we are lavishly blessed, every one of us, <laughs> And, uh, and that it would, it, the way other people would look upon us, they would, uh, they would think exactly that, that they would want a life like ours. But the principle here is that on one hand, the path to happiness, the path to blessing is living life the way God uh, ordains it or orders it, living life God's way, delighting to do what he commands and refraining from doing what he forbids. That sounds way oversimplified, doesn't it? And that, again, that doesn't mean uh, all of the sort of the images we have in our mind of what a happy life looks like. That's not, that's not all what he's promising to every individual. But it's to say blessing comes from living life God's way. And on the other hand, it reminds us that the reason the world is so disordered is because of man's refusal to live God's way. That's right, how, that's how the story begins, right? In Genesis chapter three, the reason the world is disordered is because of the refusal to live life the way God had ordered it. That the limits God imposed were too restrictive for our father Adam and our mother Eve. Hey, you take after your father and mother, let me tell you. (laughs) And so do I. But that's why the world is so disordered. And yet God says, even in that disordered world, live this way, the way that I've revealed. Do things my way and it'll go well with you. And what Deuteronomy and Psalm 128 envisioned for all Israel, the New Testament envisions for the whole world. Again, this is part of the way the story unfolds and why I said, I think that opening chapters of Deuteronomy are really so important to understanding that, that overarching story because what God does for a man, Abraham, and his uh, son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, and 12 great-grandsons who become 12 Families who become 12 tribes, who become a nation. That from that nation, he brings forth a savior to bless the whole world. What, 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 what Deuteronomy and Psalm 128 envisioned for all Israel, the New Testament envisions for the whole world. 
that in Christ, living God's way would bless all the world that will be willing to do that. And there's plenty of evidence that ordering society around uh, Christian principles has a positive and transformative effect on whole societies and civilizations. This is not theoretical. It's not abstract. But that living, ordering, ordering life according to Christian principles, according to Christian truth, Christian values, blesses the world. It has, it is, it does bless. In spite of the fact that at every point in history, at every turn, in every location, there are Christians who fail miserably to live up to our own moral standards, right? We can declare them on one hand and violate them with the other simultaneously. If I had a third hand, I could violate them with that hand too. But even in spite of that fact, ordering society according to Christian principles blesses societies and the people who occupy it. And as I said, there's really a, a great deal of evidence of this to the chagrin of atheists and secular humanists that, would, uh, that just want to write a, a different narrative. But there's been fairly recent studies uh, in, the, in these regards that I wanna, I wanna share just a couple of them. One that I've cited some time ago, but uh, Robert Woodbury was a sociologist. He is a sociologist at Baylor University. He actually did his uh, doctoral studies at University of North Carolina, that mecca of Christian conservatism. <laughs> and he... He found uh, in a study that he did in, um, in 2012, he wrote this, this article called The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. The Missionary Roots of Liberal, Liberal Democracy. And here are some of his findings. That in places in the world where there had been um, a, a significant prolonged presence of what he called conversionary Protestant missionaries, Protestant missionaries who went there to convert people to faith in Jesus Christ and stayed there. Where there had been that presence, conversionary Protestant missionaries heavily influenced the rise and spread of stable democracy around the world. The, the, the presence and activity of those missionaries, he said, were crucial in initiating the development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations and colonial reforms which created the conditions that made stable democracy more likely. And here's the thing, Robert Woodbury, I remember reading about this uh, years back in Christianity Today, there was an article there in 2014. Uh, but he knew as he, as he began to pile up the evidence that supported this, he knew the pushback that was gonna come from it. And he didn't say it this way, but, but it's almost as if there was a part of him that wished that wouldn't be true, <laughs> that those findings wouldn't be so convincing. But he knew, he knew that he had to really uh, have overwhelming support, overwhelming evidence that there was this correlation. 
and there was. Again, the, the, the secular world wants to write a whole different narrative about that and construe uh, missionaries as colonialists, as sort of evil proselytizers, get them out of here, they're no good. And again, there have been plenty of ways in which Christians everywhere they've gone have done no good also, right? They've done no good along with their good. But see, God is good even when Christians aren't. <laughs> and the truth is true even when Christians violate it. And ordering life according to his truth brings about those, that, that, that blessing. And so you have found democracy has emerged, education has, has emerged. People have experienced greater degrees of freedom, of personal dignity, um, economic advance and so forth where, where Christian truth has been spread. The second uh, source I would point to in this regard is a, is a book written in 2019 by Tom Holland a British historian and author. The book is called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now again, to, to, to give this a, a little bit of uh, credibility perhaps, Tom Holland is considered himself a secular humanist as well. He's a British uh, academic, did his uh, undergraduate study at Cambridge. He grew up, um, in the influence, sort of under the influence of the Anglican church, but, but uh, as a teenager rejected Christianity, just found it all kind of boring and unnecessary. He was a humanist in, in all regards. Uh, but he had a keen interest in the ancient world, particularly Greece and Rome. That's where a lot of his historical studies, translations of old texts and that kind of thing had been. And so he he embarked on this study to find in the, the modern West, in, the, in liberal democracies, uh, where humanism prevails in many cases around uh, Europe, where do those ideas come from? Where do the things that we value and believe in the West, where do those ideas originate? See, the, again, the, the secularists would want to say, well, it's a product of a number of things. It's mostly uh, Greco-Roman philosophy sort of mixed with Enlightenment philosophy. Christianity mixed in there somehow, but it's, you know, there's really Enlightenment ideas. And what, what Tom Holland found as he did the research on this book is that couldn't be farther from the truth. He said that the central values and priorities of modern Western secular cultural, uh, culture have actually come from Christianity. That the Christian faith, he says, is the most influential framework for making sense of human existence that has ever existed. The most influential framework for making sense of human existence. And it still shapes the way secular people think about the world. He emphasizes the fact that our belief uh, in things like the dignity of every individual, the, the very concept of universal human rights, our sense of a moral obligation to protect the weak. All of those are products of Christian thought. And in fact, he says, in, in antiquity, uh, you find those concepts of valuing the weak to be absolutely foreign. That it, it is, it is a, um, almost sickeningly brutal world 
that did not produce those kind of values. What produced them? God became man. And he humbled himself. He took the form of a bondservant, Philippians says, the form of a slave, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because we were introduced to the cross by way of Christianity, that statement doesn't have all of the force to us that it did to those hearing it and reading it in the first century. But let's see if we can grasp something of the great significance of that. Because before Christ, the cross was a symbol of terror. It was of the Roman government. They, They crucified people publicly in order to send a message. If slaves try to rebel, here's what'll happen to you. In the most gruesome way, in, in, in the most uh, agonizing way, an intentionally protracted process of dying out in the sun and publicly. The cross was a symbol of terror, of suppression, of death. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, made it a symbol of life, a symbol of hope, a symbol of faith, not fear. And see, we, we see the cross and we only know it as that message, right? We only know it as a symbol of those things. Why? Because Jesus turned the world upside down. Because every, everything the world valued, uh, every path that the world regarded as a path to success, to victory, etc., all of that Jesus turned absolutely on his head. And he changed the world. Such that the world, we can't, we can't think of the world today without valuing individual human dignity, right? Universal human rights. We, we know that for us, it is more noble to suffer for somebody than it is to inflict suffering upon somebody. That is a Christian idea. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. We have lived under that blessing all of our lives without even knowing it. And so have our non-Christian neighbors who even right now aggressively desire and, and are making efforts to dismantle that, who think foolishly that they can hold on to the values of Christianity for long after they have expelled Christ. And they, and they might for a season but it'll only be a season. And you can, you can bet that. And the, and the almost humorous irony of it is even right now, as, uh, as there are people, movements, that would sort of picture Christians or, or, or want to depict Christians 
as oppressors that need to be sort of cast aside for the, in defense of the weak. They're actually employing a Christian value in defending the weak against the Christian oppressors. They can't even escape the influence of Christian thought on our society. It is to say there is great evidence that this is true, that blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. And it ought to make us sit up in our seat a little bit more, to pay attention a little bit more carefully, even to our own thoughts and thinking that we're not taken captive by vain and empty philosophies of men, that we don't buy in to truth claims that just aren't true, but that we give ourselves entirely to God and to his word, that we delight ourselves in him, that we order our lives according to his way, that we might be blessed and happy ourselves and that our families might be our neighborhoods, our city and our nation. Because without him, we can be uh, assured that his favor will dissipate. We'll, we'll, we'll live off of the dividends of his blessing for some length of time and then suddenly found, find they have all dried up because we expelled uh, the one whose favor we've enjoyed for generations. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this precious precious truth that there even is a way in this disordered world where order might be brought to it and where blessing might be experienced and encountered. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to our own patterns, habits, values, and priorities that we would, one by one, make adjustments as we need to to order our lives according to your ways. But Lord, that we would, that we would also stand for the truth that you've revealed in the public square, Lord, that we would not surrender or capitulate to godless demands. And Lord, if godlessness is to prevail in our world, let it prevail over our steadfast determination to walk in your ways and to exalt the name of Jesus. Lord, order our hearts in the way that would order our steps that you might be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to the Lord's table today for communion, and it is because of that great sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross that he 
endured for us that agonizing, protracted death and dying that we might live through him. And so we partake of, in communion, his body and blood. In a very real sense, yet in a spiritual sense, but we come to receive something that God does for us in communion, not just something that we come to do by drinking a cup and eating a little wafer. We remember what he did for us, but it is not only a remembrance of him, but an encounter with him, the risen Lord. Um, I will say, as I always try to do, that the invitation here is to all who are believers in Jesus, you don't have to be a member of our church or a church in our denomination or anything of that sort. If you, uh, if you belong to his family, uh, you're welcome to dine in ours. If you are invited to his table, then you're invited to our table. Um, and if you're not a believer, uh, then that's okay. We would just encourage you by the Lord's word uh, to let that distribution just pass by today. We'd love to talk with you about how you might enter into relationship with Jesus and commit to a life of following him. Um, but today would not be the day to partake of uh, the continuation of a covenant with him when you haven't yet entered covenant with him. Uh, there's a reminder that this is a remembrance of his death, as I said, but also just a seal of all the benefits we have in Christ and a bond of our communion with one another. And we're reminded that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For those who are maybe partaking uh, of communion here for the first time with us, I'll tell you these are little um, disposable containers that have two little foil coverings on them, one for the wafer, the other for the juice. Uh, we will distribute the elements and then use the song that the worship team will sing as just a time of response and reflection and preparation for that as we examine ourselves as we're urged to do in the scriptures. And you may also during that time uh, want to go ahead and try to peel those little uh, foil coverings off so that you don't wrestle with them uh, when that time comes if you have any difficulty with that. And if you're unable to uh, peel that back or sort of pierce through it or whatever and need some help if you'll just signal one of the elders who's uh, distributing the elements and they can help you with that. I'm gonna ask our elders who are going to be distributing to come forward as I pray for us. Would you bow with me? Well, Lord, we do thank you for the great gift that Jesus was and is to us. We thank you that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we're thankful that in this sacrament that we receive his body and his blood and are brought into real heavenly communion with him. So we ask that you would bless this ordinary juice and bread and set it apart for this extraordinary purpose that we might encounter Jesus in it. And as we do, Lord, would you minister to people forgiveness, restoration, healing and wholeness, just grace upon grace in all the ways that we have need. We ask it in Christ's name.